Welcome to Educational Alpha. Kaya CEO and host Bill Kelly brings you on-the-ground conversations with business leaders, educators, coaches, and industry colleagues from around the globe. In this episode, Bill talks with Ashby Monk, whom he describes as a rock star in the industry. Their intriguing discussion breaks down Ashby's recently co-authored paper, The Investor Identity, The Ultimate Driver of Returns. This one is a real behind-the-curtain peek at the argument being made about institutional investors' identity being the leading driver of returns within a portfolio. Listen in. Welcome to the latest edition of Educational Alpha, where the investor's edge starts with informed consent. I'm your host, Bill Kelly, and today I'm joined by Ashby Monk. Ashby, great to see you again. Great to see you. Thanks for having me. Uh, no, my pleasure. Uh, so it's, it's, I think I saw you just, I don't know, not quite a year ago out in LA uh, for the Alt LA, where that's coming up again in March. And you left us in a very good place, having led that discussion a year ago, but you've been quite busy. And we're going to talk about the investor identity in a moment. But I think it's good to maybe level set. You're a, a bit of a rock star in this industry. Many people know you, but maybe the few that don't. And maybe to sort of to lead you a little bit with a very quick story. When I first joined Kaya, my first international trip was into London. And this is back when you had to slap your passport down and talk to the uh, passport control folks. So on the landing card, it asked for occupation. And I put evangelist. And it just threw this guy for a loop because uh, evangelist, what religion? I said, oh, no, it's uh, alternative investments. And so I didn't do that again. But then I looked at your background and I said, what would have Ashby Monk had written on that? And I wrote a few things down. Author, educator, entrepreneur, consultant, researcher. What would be on your landing card? How do you define who Ashby Monk is? And maybe you can't fit it on a landing card. Oh, I love it. I love the challenge. Um, you know, I think evangelist comes close because when people are like, what do you actually do? You know, I try to explain that I've found a problem that I'm working on rather than, you know, a job that I'm doing. And the problem is that pension funds, it's funny that you called me a rock star. I'd say like people who study pension funds are not usually sought after at cocktail parties, right? Like telling you about the design and governance of these bureaucratic organizations, but I, I think they're the most important organizations on earth. And I put a period at the end of that sentence because, you know, on the one hand, they're, they're the base of the modern capitalist system. The capital that flows out through hedge funds and venture capital comes from these funds. And on the other side, they're not really capitalist. You know, the IRS lets them compound their returns tax-free. That doesn't sound very commercial. You know, why is that? Well, it turns out they have a social social objective and they kind of inhabit all these weird regulatory spaces that make their decision making highly complex you know just as we have business schools i think we need entire schools to these organizations you know the whole stock market in the world is 120 trillion like these organizations hold more than 100 trillion so my project in life is to work on them and i love that you call yourself an evangelist I want somebody once called me an activist. Ashby's not an academic. He's an activist. And I took offense for that for the first 10 years, but now I actually think maybe that was right. You know, it's like maybe I am out here really trying to push the agenda of helping pension funds and sovereign funds and endowments get what they need to achieve their objectives and more help the world. I, I love the term activist because oftentimes, Ashby, I say to myself and anybody that cares to listen, 
where's the client's lobbyist? And they need one because uh, these are big pools of assets, but ultimately it's an individual on the other end. And now that we have sort of collapsed down in many parts of the world, the DB system, now all of it is on me. And somehow 40 or 50 years ago through some arcane 401k provision of a tax act, these big DB plans have become sort of in secular decline, and now it's up to us as individuals. So, so the power and the importance of that capital, which has been splintered, how do we get that back together again and have it directed for an end purpose? And I think therein lies a very, very big problem. So, so we need to have an activist that's speaking on behalf of both the DB plan and better outcomes for DC. Yeah, you nailed really the big problem, which is how do we going to help people retire with dignity? You know, and it's basically the defined contribution system in America is like going on to WebMD, diagnosing yourself and prescribing medication to yourself. It's pretty hard to get that right. I think the role model for the future is probably in Australia, the super funds there where they pool the capital. It's a defined contribution plan, but they pool the capital together and you get professional management and you get exposure to, here we are, alternative investments. Very difficult thing to do through the, the American 401k system, but it's part of what the super funds do in Australia every day. Obviously, they need to manage that liquidity very well, which means they need great technology and they need great pacing models and liquidity models and things like that if you're going to provide daily navs on portfolios that have a, a lot of private equity and infrastructure and real estate. But they do it, and they do it quite well because they pool the capital and they get a lot of professional um, investors around those portfolios. So, But I, I also would just like make a plea here to say we need to educate Kaya members, CFA members, PhDs in econ, what pension funds do on a daily basis. I'm shocked when I ask people at Stanford, I say, who in the room is ready to give a coherent definition of a pension fund? Nobody. This isn't a topic that like undergraduate courses are written about. And yet we need everybody to understand this, this community and, and see them as a place where they can go work and really have a, a flourishing career. And, you know, and that opens up so many doors you probably don't even have a chance to get to today. But you're right. There's no major uh, in college or a master's degree that's focused on the, the world of pensions or asset management. And I think it even makes the challenge of DEI a big issue. My wife graduated med school 40 years ago, and her graduating class was half women for the very first time. 40 years ago. And we're still struggling to get to 15% of women in senior roles in our industry. So uh, so there are medical schools, there's law schools, there's accounting degrees, but I think it puts an even higher emphasis and responsibility on us to recognize that there are a lot of people coming into this industry that don't fully understand who that end investor is and how do they operate? How do they function? What are some of their challenges? 100%. And I'll tell you, I am, for the first time, I went through the course catalog at, at Stanford, and there was one class that was close. It was on manager selection and asset allocation, and the blurb was, you know, what do these pension funds do? But the reality is it, it's a course on manager selection. And so I finally, I'm putting my, is it money where my mouth is? I don't know what I'm putting, my time where my mouth is. I'm teaching a class this spring on institutional investors. And it's about unraveling the world of pension funds, sovereign funds for the Stanford community. And I got all this advice from people. They were like, people won't know what this is. So you got to put the word sustainable capitalism in there. So my course is called Institutional Investors in Sustainable Capitalism. 
the punchline is we're going to talk about sustainable capitalism on like the last day in the last five minutes. But the reality is we're just going to teach a course on asset owners and we'll see how it goes. And maybe from there we can do more courses. And eventually my dream would be to have an entire master's program. Hey, maybe we partner with you guys on that. We'll get you over there. I would love that. Well, I, I, let me know how it goes and we'll have you back to talk more about that. I hope it's oversubscribed uh, and nobody drops it on ad drop day, but well done on that, which I think is a very good segue. Uh, I, I don't know this paper intimately, Ashby, but you've written for us before in Portfolio for the Future. So I kind of know a little bit how you tick, but if I have it right, uh, you and Dane had written this new, uh, I don't know if it's a continuation on the theme, but the investor identity and and it, I guess there are seven ultimate drivers, but I think if I have it right, you broke it down into four sort of the raw ingredients that drive return, uh, capital, people, process, and information, but then the enablers. And that's maybe what separates a high handicapped golfer from somebody that's on the PGA Tour. And maybe that's the governance, the culture, and the technology. So you can either start with the raw ingredients or the enablers, but I do want to make sure we leave some time for the enablers because I think that separates the wheat from the chaff. You're right to say that this work is an extension of the work we did for you guys, which was about operational alpha and how do organizations organize themselves to put them in a position to outperform. And I think the motivation for just calling it an identity was this realization that the word model was almost being misused. When we say the Yale model or Canadian model, what we're really saying is those are role models. They're not models in the sense that like they're mathematical or they are formalized because the Yale model is at its core a way to achieve alignment of interests with managers and build incredibly diversified portfolios. The Canadian model is an implementation model. You know, it's about how you access managers. The Norway model is really a governance model. It's about, you know, running it through the central bank instead of through the Ministry of Finance. If you take CalSTRS and what they call the collaborative model, that's actually another level altogether. It's about innovation and changing the terms of trade to access alternative managers. So, so here I've listed off four different models but we're talking at different levels of the organization. I bet we could invent an investment organization that is running all four models at the same time. And so with that in mind, it's like, well, a Canadian approached implementation, a Yale asset allocation, a Norwegian governance structure, and an innovation mindset like CalSTRS, and you've got every model out there. Well, that means this isn't a very good term to think about how we build these organizations for success. We need something that we compare apples to apples. And that's what the identity was about. We've got people, process, and information. Those are key inputs. The capital that you're managing comes with lots of encumbrances in general, and sometimes advantages. If you're long-term capital, most of the long-term investors will say, well, we're lucky we're long-term. We can take a liquidity risk. What else? Like, what else should we know about your fund? All of those pieces are very important. And then as you call out, there's the enablers that allow you to improve how you combine your people process and information with the capital. So I want to maybe focus and take each one of these enablers in order. And if I think about starting with governance, I could go out and hire the very best board in terms of talent and capabilities and have a a uh, uh, no correlation, one skill to the next. So like a portfolio, I've got very good uncorrelated talent. 
But it seems like to me, one of the points you made is the biggest mistake I can make is how I delegate that governance, how I delegate responsibility. And and is it a fair observation to say if you're going to get it wrong, it's in the delegation of governance? The delegation of authorities down to staff is one of those heuristics for spotting sophisticated asset owners, long-term investors. People used to ask me, hey, what's the one thing you look at when you're trying to figure out if this is a smart plan or a plan that is struggling? I used to say the nomination procedures to the board of directors, because if you look at those, you can usually figure out, do they care about professionalism or is this more about representation? And I've kind of shifted tune a little bit because I've seen some pretty sophisticated pension funds with representative boards. You know, it's not all about expertise. The The representative components can actually do a great job if they get the delegations right. And so now I say, show me the delegation frameworks. Show me what does the portfolio manager have authority to do on her own, on his own? What does the chief investment officer need to approve? What does the investment committee need to approve? And ultimately then back up to the board. You know, are there certain transactions that need to make their way all the way to the board of directors? Ideally, you're really only doing edge cases at the board. You know, you don't want the board think like meeting managers. It's terrible use of governance time. You want them thinking about strategy. You want them thinking about resourcing. You want them thinking about how do we get good governance around data? around manager selection, around technology. Those are the kinds of things that governance really empower. And just one follow-up on governance. So if you came in, Ashby, and I was at Sovereign Wealth Fund XYZ, and and you asked my delegation framework, how often do you say, oh, it's right here in my top drawer? (laughs) Rarely. Usually they're spread around. So the board would have a set of delegations probably defined and approved at investment committee, at chief investment officer, and and it'll often stop there. And those usually are sitting in a top drawer somewhere. By top drawer, they can send you a PDF of it. It's the kind of more cultural components that take over from there as you get down from chief investment officer into the team. Many will say, oh, well, we have a, we have a management investment committee, or the CIO needs to approve everything. And so then it becomes almost like, you know, what are your norms of operation? Does the CIO just take the suggestions of the team and implement them? Is there a lot of debate? There are no two organizations that feel the same in this regard. Uh, Every organization has a slightly different culture and process around deploying that capital. Although what is the same is they all write a memo. And that, you know, here's where the technology falls down. Here we are in 2023. We have helicopters flying on Mars. We got chat GPT that is blowing people's minds by writing, you know, I think chat GPT is like the auto tune for writing. It's like what auto tune did to the music industry, chat GPT is going to do to my world. But that's a bit of a non sequitur. What I was thinking was a lot of these organizations, they just still open up a Word document and write a Word document investment memo that is powered with spreadsheets. That is just dysfunctional to me. Like, I think at a certain point, we're going to have to have all of this sitting in software and trackable and auditable and, you know, investment memos become living documents. But right now, they're just memos, PDFs. They go in a drawer. A culture, sort of as an activist, evangelist, maybe you can see, smell, touch it when you walk into an office, but is it tangible, intangible? How long does it take you to figure out if it's good culture, bad culture? How do you assess that? Yeah, we, we over-index in the parlance of technology. We, we use culture almost too much 
to drive the decision-making norms we're looking for. So rather than designing really sophisticated compensation programs or decision-making processes, we turn to culture. And, you know, we talk about the member or the sponsor or the, you know, whatever it is that we're managing on behalf of the university. You can usually feel the culture almost immediately. So if you go down to Australia, which I'm sure you do, you will start hearing the super funds talk about their members. Is this in the member's interest? It is a recurring theme that guides decision making. The member orientation of the Australian super funds is profound, and it does affect decision-making, both positive and negative. The positive is people think deeply about whether this is going to help the member. What they struggle with, then, is when they need to be innovative. So if, if all you're thinking about is the benefit of the member, you start being conservative in terms of what you do. And then the supply and demand of your capital in the market starts to not benefit the asset owner, start to benefit the asset manager. So yeah, I would say the cultural piece is immediately evident and it takes a decade to build a good culture, but you can destroy your culture in a couple of weeks if you have the wrong leader. Yeah. And on the subject of leadership, there has been a lot of, of change in the top of these organizations. I've seen a lot of CEO, CIOs, long-term tenure moving on and, uh, and good culture needs, I would assume, to be not person-dependent because if, if it is destroyed because somebody leaves or retires, then did you really have it in the first place? Uh, so how often do you see the tone at the top of culture is defined by one person versus being able to sense that it's integral to how an organization operates and functions? And you really have to have the latter, I assume, for it to be effective. 100%. I would say leadership without culture is a very vulnerable place to be. When you lose that leader, you lose the identity of the entire organization. And so building a good leader builds a good culture around what they're doing. I mean, the, if you take Swenson, you know, Yale model still powering ahead because the culture there was um, very well defined and the approach to investing was had kind of integrated all aspects of that organization. And so, you know, I think culture is hard to define, but it is the leader's job to define it and to communicate it and set a language that is a shared language. And, you know, you see in places like Canada and Australia and Singapore that that shared language is there. I think here in the U.S. we're starting to have it in endowments and pension funds. I would say our pensions are a little bit behind in some of the cultural aspects because they've often been reliant on consulting service providers, especially the more, you know, regional or city or county pension plans. But, you know, we'll see. And then uh, technology, and this is a theme from your work with us, and maybe it's it's evolved. But when we last spoke about this, Ashby, we talked about making data-driven decisions, not process-based decisions. And and to say, well, we, I'm doing it today because that's the way we did it last week, last month, five years ago, but uh, really weaponizing this data and helping you make more intelligent decisions. Is, that, is it as simple as that, or is the theme evolved in this latest update? No, you've nailed it. So many people look at technology and they're like, how do I get what I know I need faster, right? So how do I, how do I use ChatGPT to write an annual report? So technology as a means of getting something faster. That's where we're still operating in this process-based world and we're just asking for faster horses. But faster horses is not where we're headed with technology. We're headed to cars. 
And that's what Henry Ford spotted, and that's what I think we all need to recognize with this technology revolution. There's the kind of easy stuff, which is use tech to do what we're doing today. But I think we're going to see technology empower pretty profound changes to our portfolios. We're going to hold less cash. We're going to invest in fewer managers and have deeper relationships because we're not going to have to diversify away our kind of um, capital call risk by having too many manager relationships. All these things I think are going to shift as we really get granular understanding of what we own. And if you trust your data, which most of us don't today, most of us build this process and have investment committees and have people with Kaya designations and PhDs because we don't trust our data. We want a human being looking at the data and saying, oh, I've seen this before. This is the turn we need to make. This is the route to success. But now flip it around. Now you trust your data because you really understand its provenance and its governance. You can really start to make interesting decisions about your routing with your portfolio in the same way that you would never trust somebody driving next to you who knows a shortcut. You would just look at your Google map, you know, and you would say, Google map, where do I need to go? And the person that's like, no, 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 I know a shortcut. You're like, come on, you know more than Google? No. So with investing, we're almost there with the portfolio GPS and then the ability to navigate into the future. And that's when we start almost seeing a new model, which I would describe as the tech-driven model, where data unlocks new investment opportunities. It's not just about reporting, which unfortunately too many people see as technology today. Let's get better at reporting. No, let's get better at understanding what we own. And then we, once we know where we are, and where we are is our environmental exposures, our traditional financial exposures, our geographic exposures, our DEI issues in the portfolio. Once we know all those things, then we can plot a new course that is uh, optimized for our goals. So uh, just one uh, quick follow-up in this, Ashby, is that I, I think that most of the listeners can 100% relate to what you're saying, but then I go back and I'm relying on horses and I have hay and groomers and I have to get the cars and mechanics and petrol. So I have to stop what I'm doing, maybe burn the whole thing down, spend all the way up to bring efficiency in, in the years to come. And if I'm in my 50s, I'm saying, wow, the career risk is enormous. And maybe if I just tap dance a little bit, I can get to retirement and leave it to the next slob coming up behind me. So, so where do you start? You don't start with the portfolio managers. I mean, it's funny to say that. Like, I don't want to be a jerk here. But in general, in my experience, the portfolio managers, they have their own IP, and it's usually living in a spreadsheet. And they have their own process. It's their network. You know, they originate deals. They vet those deals. And their spreadsheets and their networks are vulnerable to tech disruption. And so you nailed it. It's like, man... They are not excited about the project of going from the equivalent of paper maps. So the person who is riding shotgun, who knows the shortcut, hey, I know this route. That's the portfolio manager today. They know the route to the world where who cares if you know the route? Like Waze knows the route and knows where the police officer is sitting so I can speed. That's a dangerous type of moment for a lot of people in their careers. And so if you're in your 50s, it does seem daunting. But I guess I would simply say it's on the technologist side to empower even those people to get benefit. Like some of this requires a lot of learning. Like if you're going to go learn Python, you're going to have to really do a lot of 
you know, coursework, knowledge, education. Maybe that's our educational alpha. But in my mind, the technology is really going to serve you when it's seamless, when just, you know, you have a phone and you're using it. And the next thing you know, your phone knows where you are and can guide you. It wasn't that hard to make that transition. It should be seamless. And we should push the technologists to make it seamless. Now, my bias here is that a lot of the asset management industries has a tendency to turn to asset management companies to deliver technology instead of technology companies to deliver technology. And so the challenge to the industry is to think broader and to deliver, um, you know, when you do an RFP for new technology, make a point to invite startups into that so they can see your requirements. My experience at Stanford is, I already said at the beginning, maybe this is coming full circle. Nobody knows what pension funds do. So if you want really awesome technology in the Stanford Engineering School, you know, you want our students building for you, when you do an RFP, make sure you send that RFP beyond the five or six names that I think we all know that deliver risk systems and data systems and custody systems. Send it to some, you know, make a point like you do when you're doing an RFP for managers to get beyond the kind of mainstream and invite startups. So the word can get out. And that word, by the way, is not just requirements. It is the spend. Because I think asset owners are going to be spending one, one and a half basis points of AUM. And when the word gets out, they're spending that much on technology. There will be a lot of interesting cars built, not faster horses, but cars. Well, I, th I think you gave me the perfect exit ramp. Uh, knowledge is educational alpha. I think that's a, a great way to leave it. So Ashby, uh, always great. I appreciate your insights. Appreciate your contribution. And it was a great conversation today. Thank you. So fun, Bill. Thank you for having me. See you soon. Good to see you. Please join us in the next segment of Educational Alpha as we look to always put the investor first through transparency, education, and informed consent. Mm -hmm.